Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen (laughs) McGirt. And Ellen, we have a really interesting guest today, Ursula Burns, who most people will probably recognize as the former CEO of Xerox. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I should add, the first and only black woman ever to lead a Fortune 500 company. Uh, But she has a new focus now, right? She sure does, and that involves diversity. And she's on fire about it. Her latest project is the Board Diversity Action Alliance, a no-nonsense plan to diversify corporate boards to address, in her very strong view, the glacial pace of progress in corporate diversity. And she's not alone. She's the co-founder, along with Gabrielle Salzberger, a powerful woman in her own right, the former board chair of Whole Foods, the consultancy Teneo, and some names familiar to the Fortune crowd, including Crystal Ashby of the Executive Leadership Council and Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. And if anybody can tackle this challenge, I would bet on Ursula. The way she got her job at Xerox is a really interesting story. And Mm -hmm. it basically resulted from her willingness to speak her mind under any circumstances, to speak truth to power in a way, but inside the company. And she has never held back. She knows what she's aiming for, and she is very direct at going about getting it. She sure is. And I will tell you, just for this project alone, she's got some powerhouse allies. Dow, MasterCard, UPS, Macy's, and Uber have all signed on. And everyone promises to increase the number of black directors on their corporate board of directors to one or more, disclose their board demographics and all inclusion metrics. And before we turn things over to her, I want to make sure our listeners understand that she's an extremely expressive speaker. It was fun (laughs) to do it on Zoom because we could see her. But since this is a podcast, you can't see that. But you may occasionally hear her hit her hands on the desk. (laughs) (laughs) She is truly passionate. The other thing, Ellen, <laughs> this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but uh, you know, we we try and steer clear of politics here on Leadership Next, but when we got uh-huh. to the end of this interview, there was no steering clear of politics. <laughs> so I would urge our listeners to stay to the end. It'll be a good dose of adrenaline for everybody wherever you are. <laughs> okay, so we started off this conversation with her laying out a few details of the board alliance. But now I want to pick things up with the question you asked, Alan about her push for board diversity and the issue of quotas. Ursula, I I, want to ask you something about that because I've known you for a long time. We've had many conversations before, and my clear memory is that you were not high on the notion of quotas. Has that changed? No, I'm still not high on the notion of quotas, but I think that we may have earned our comeuppance when it Mm -hmm. comes to quotas. Because, see, I, I actually was under the impression, still am, that when you know that you have a challenge, that you have a gap, that you do some studies, you put your best minds to it, and you work on it, and most of the time businesses solve problems. That's why we have R&D departments. We can invent new drugs. We can get ourselves to the moon. My belief was that that would be enough to actually have very smart multi-billion dollar companies do what is reasonable. What has happened though, Alan, is that we have failed across the board. 
And every year we say, oh my God, it's a problem. We still haven't met it. We're going to keep working on it. When I thought about this, I was trying to reflect on, so now what else do you do? Well, they tell you over and over and over again that they're going to do something and they don't do it, is that you mm. bring other forces to bear. And I use the example of, if you have a parent who has to pay child support because they're not living with the family, they say, here you go. Here's the child support agreement, go pay it. After a couple of failed attempts to actually have this person do it voluntarily, they do this thing called garnish the salary. They take the right away from the individual to fail again. And the one thing that I think about quotas and the reason why I'm even opening my mind towards it is because with quotas, you're removing the right for people to fail again. So Ursula, why have we failed so badly? Well, I think that there's, you know, I was thinking about this as well. I think that where we are now is that we have a structure that, and one of my colleagues said this, the head of the ELC, Crystal Ashbury, she said it so well. She said, the structure believes that they own these roles. They own these seats. The structure is a white male structure. Even the black women, the white women, the black and brown men actually treat it like it's theirs. And we're mm-hmm. going to get some of it. We're going to take some of it. It's not theirs. We have to change everything about how we approach this. This is definitely not theirs to give up. So I think that what has happened is we've approached this like we approach a lot of what the structure in America and structure around the world is, which is that people have gotten used to where they are, even if it's unjust, and we have to actually make it painless to make the transition. And if we can't make it painless to make the transition from an unfair, unbalanced system to a more fair, more balanced system, we don't, we don't want to do it. We don't want to upset people because they're going to give something up. I'm at the point now, and it's not just me, it's not me. I, I think it's basically, we are at the point now where voices in the world that were silent before are starting to speak up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to last forever, but it's happening for sure. Right? So we have young people, we have women, <laughs> Black and brown people, just people in general who are not part of the system, they're starting to articulate more and more that at least they'd like to understand what the heck the system is and how it works and how is it we can drag people kicking and screaming to the right place. But I don't think that's necessary. Now I'm here with the awesome Kristen Bellstrom, features editor at Fortune, but so, so much more keeper of the broadsheet, our daily newsletter on women in business and gender equity. You must subscribe to it if you don't. And the co-keeper of the list, our big list of most powerful women in business. She is a powerhouse ally and friend. Kristen, thank you for being such a good sport about me talking about how wonderful you are in front of you. I love that, Ellen. Please continue doing it all day. Um, Thank you so much. Let's do it every day. Great to be here with you. So I want to dive right in with uh, the Ursula Burns announcement. She thinks that board racial diversity is a huge problem. Do you agree? Can you help us define the scope of this? Sure. I absolutely agree with Ursula Burns on that point. One of the more interesting statistics I've seen recently was a study that just came out in September looking at the 3,000 largest publicly traded companies and finding that they had 12.5% diverse board members. And Mm -hmm. that's something that includes all underrepresented ethnic and racial groups. 
it's only up from 10% in 2015. Mm. So while that number is very, very slowly ticking up, it's obviously nowhere near representative to the U.S. population. So I'm not aware of any serious efforts to address board diversity in this particular way. Are you? Well, I mean, I have seen some expansion of board diversity efforts that started being focused specifically on female directors. And, you know, there, there are quite a number of those, and they have made more progress. You know, for instance, this, this same survey found that um, among those companies, women made up 21% um, of okay. directors, and, and that's up from 13% in 2015. So you can see that this is a place where some progress has been made. And some of these efforts, you know, I'm thinking of the 30% Club, Catalyst Women on Boards, the board list, a few of them have expanded really fairly recently to focus more on candidates from underrepresented groups as well. But, you know, really the problem has been that the focus has been on women and Mm -hmm. that has in practice become white women, um, which really, (laughs) if you're trying to diversify your board, just adding white women does, does not do the job. Right. No, it sure doesn't. And I think one of the things that I really like about Ursula's project is that they're asking for transparency, disclosure, promise to add at least one black board member and then make the racial and ethnic demographics of your board public and tell us what you're doing. Like, what are the initiatives that you're taking on to increase diversity on the board, making it all public? Do you think that will make a difference? I think making your numbers public is really a huge step forward. And and it's something that's been a struggle, you know, for those of us outside of corporate America who report on it, you know, those numbers tell us a lot Mm -hmm. about the state of things and what progress, if, if any, is happening so I think in many cases, it will be difficult for companies because a lot of those numbers are, are not going to look great. They're not going to be where they want them to be right now. But I think there's safety in numbers um, when it comes mm-hmm. to transparency and sharing your starting point. And, you know, that, that's really the only possible way to measure progress. Kristen, I think you're onto something. I really think transparency is the way forward. Ursula also has some opinions on why this continues to be such a tough benchmark for companies to hit. Let's take a listen. One of the things we found out in the Board Diversity Action Alliance is this is really, truly valid institutional inertia. Companies have to go to their nominations and governance committees. I call CEOs. They go, oh, I love this idea. We'll do this. Oh, but I have to go to my nom and governance committee because they don't hire the board. The CEO doesn't hire the board. So there's a whole, I am okay with all of that slow process just as long as it ends up with someone contemplating what we've said and taking action, either actively to do it or to not do it. What we find is that it's just hard to change a a liner that's headed down a direction. It's really hard. You know, there's all these reasons. Mm -hmm. All of the reasons are structural reasons designed by the owners of the structure. We have a cap on the number of board members we have. It's in our bylaws. You don't have to have 12. You can have 13 if you want. <laughs> There's no law that says you have to do any of this stuff, but we've set it up in such a way that it, that it now presents itself to people who want to agitate against the current state to look like a law, to look like, oh my God, I have to undo all of this stuff. And you keep asking, how did it get there in the first place? You find out, oh, we just made it that way. Literally, I understand. I ran a company, two companies. I understand that this is not something you just walk in and say, we're going to do it and the CEO goes off on his horse and does it. I understand it takes time. The thing I don't want to confuse anyone with is that 
this time that it's going to take for you to do this is just, it's like a candle burning, the wick. The wick is not going to continually be pulled out like it has in the past. I think we're in a time, particularly as we head towards this election, particularly as you look at what's happening in the world where people are getting more and more impatient with just silly answers. Ursula, you know that in the early days of women on boards, when in many cases there was just one, they often didn't speak up because they didn't want to be perceived as the spokesperson for women's issues. You know, they wanted to talk about the business. So how do you deal with that problem? I mean, it's never been a problem for you because you speak out always in every circumstance, but you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And how do you deal with that? Absolutely. Problem? One of the things that is kind of behind these three, these three commitments, these three actions that we want the companies to take, one is to get at least one. And if you have one, please get more. The second is to disclose. And the third is reporting on diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics. This is not so that we can just report. We want to help you. One of the things you got to be careful of, I say it all the time, you have to be careful to not become the go-to person for diversity. So literally, there's a diversity topic on the thing. They say, oh my God, we have a problem in, in XYZ because there are not enough women. And they basically, the entire board shuts up and turns to the woman on the board and say, tell us <laughs> what is going on here. We want to assure that not only the directors, but the companies understand the traps, right? The traps of bringing in difference. This is all about working together to try to figure out a way to make the progress that we need to make and not make it so painful. Everybody says to me, I, right after George Floyd, I got lots and lots and lots of calls. You heard about this. And literally, I would ask, okay, so what are you looking for? After the first couple of calls, what are you looking for? And here was the specification almost to the person literally different industries. I'd like a sitting or former CEO or CFO who's African-American. That's the <laughs> I said, literally, you can, if these people, if I ever told who they were, you can ask them what I said. You do not need to call me to get the name of those people. They're like 20 right. of them. I mean, really, we know who they are. Google. Exactly right. Google. right. We know exactly who right. they are. We know exactly what they're doing. Etc. And I, my question is, where did that spec come from? Is right. your board all right. sitting or former CEOs and CFOs? The answer is no. Think about the bias, the supremacy in that specification to me. That's an amazing indictment. Yeah. yeah. Literally, you come to me, you tell me that in order for a black person to sit on the board, they have to have walked on the moon with the rest of the moonwalkers. There were only five of them. Then you can come in. You've eliminated all but five black people in the whole United States. And that simple <laughs> example I just gave, if you're an insightful leader, will bother you tremendously, right. right? That should make you feel so uncomfortable because you, what you've just said is my biased thinking is that in order for you to play in a room with a whole bunch of relatively average people, you have to be well above average to even enter. 
I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, there's a tremendous amount of fear out there at a time like this. And the normal tendency for people faced with fear is to either freeze or to panic. How do leaders deal with those conflicting impulses? It's essential to maintain the trust of your people and your external stakeholders. You have to demonstrate in a circumstance like this that health comes first. And you have to demonstrate that whatever message you're delivering is credible and grounded in the real facts. It's okay to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. People don't expect us as CEOs to have a crystal ball. They do expect us though to deliver straight talk that enables everyone to understand how this could play out and how each of those paths could affect both the company and them individually. And it really is important to have a compelling vision for the future that's inspiring, but doesn't appear to paint over the difficult present circumstances. You have to acknowledge and own how challenging the current circumstances are to earn the right to speak to a more optimistic future in a way that instills confidence. Good advice, Joe, thanks. Great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. So Ursula, I, I want to ask you a question about stakeholder capitalism. The idea that regular people in the middle of a pandemic are marching in the street for a very specific type of racial justice and who are customers and who live in communities who have been underserved or disserved in a variety of ways, either environmental or social, by big companies, it's kind of an amazing moment in time. How are you thinking about how leaders moving forward need to listen to their stakeholders more effectively? This is a make or break moment for companies. You know, I said this the other day, I said, when I was a CEO, it was quite honestly a little bit easier. We were narrow-minded and dumb. I, I hate to say it. We could get away with, my primary interest is for the shareholder. You know, we, we could have that conversation and people, we would be protected by people, right? This right, it was a hedge, yeah. Right, it was a hedge, right. Not anymore. The problem is that even if you're not committed to this, even if you are just playing, uh, you know, just mouthing the words, which is what happens in the beginning, generally, right? Until you're, like I said, until you're kind of held up against the wall. We know it started with the environment. Right. And then it went to, in, in America at least, then it went to racial justice. Then it went to what I call inclusive capitalism. This idea that, that the 1%, that there is this thing called the 1%, which there's always a 1% of something, right? But that this 1% garners so much power, so much money, so much everything is making everyone, even a lot of the one percenters nervous. We are at a moment right now in this country that doesn't have to only do with George Floyd, doesn't have to only do with the Me Too movement, doesn't have to only do with the environment, doesn't have to only do with the lack of leadership in this country, doesn't have to only do with the pandemic. It's all of those things coming together. Five years from now, if we haven't, we're going to be in the middle of this mix still. You know, I mean, we're going to still be struggling because it's a lot to fix in a short amount of time. I would be surprised if we're not still in this debate trying to make progress. The other alternative is that we just go back to normal. Everybody goes back to home, whatever their home base was, and they shut up until the next big event. 
I don't think we're there anymore. Everything is changing. I think you're right on target. I mean, that's why we started this podcast, because it seemed to us that we were at a critical turning point for business on a lot of things and the companies were going to have to be led differently. But I want to take you back to Xerox for a minute, because while we talk about this a lot on the podcast, a lot of times our, our guests are running companies that are making tons of money, right? You know, we had Dan Shulman of PayPal or Mark Benioff of Salesforce or Neil Boosery of Workday. I mean, you were in a tough situation at Xerox. You had Carl Icahn in your stock giving you a hard time. Isn't it a lot harder to do good while doing well when you aren't doing that well? Absolutely. It is very difficult to do good while doing well when you're not doing that well. One is that you're really distracted around things that are urgent, but not necessarily important, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You got to deal with the urgent before you have any chance to even start looking at the important yeah. stuff. But if you're in running, you realize what's really important. And it generally isn't the urgent thing yeah. that's happening. So the answer is yes. But I will tell you what, we have no proof points whatsoever that it's easy to do good while you're doing well either. <laughs> Take the companies. Take them. Take Facebook. I don't think you can say that Facebook is doing, that that they're doing good. Plain and simple. Diversity, uh, you name it. And they're doing just fine financially. So I I think that it makes it harder, but I don't think that it it, it obviously isn't easy or else we would have a lot more progress than we have. (laughs) Do you, but do you think we are at a turning point on that? I do absolutely believe I, I don't think that we're, I think that where we are is that we will know, we will be paying attention to these types of metrics and we will start to hopefully make decisions, not only based on the normal stuff, but on these type of metrics as well. That's all I want. I want full disclosure of the facts, not to me, but to the people who own your stock, the people who buy your products, the people who actually allow you to take up space in their community that they should know what kind of company you are. And by the way, at the end of the day, I always say this, the people may say, we're fine. We're fine. I'm fine with the governance the way it is. I'm still willing to buy. I think it's a good company. I'm going to rate it fine. And if that's the case, fine. You know, and I, I play it this way. We, I, I'm going to say it anyway. We elected a person who my mother would not have in her house for dinner. Forget policy rhetoric, behavior, manners, everything. And we seem to be okay with that. And and well, Ellen, will you let me follow up on this for for of one course. minute because I think this You almost is, jumped out of your chair. I did. And and <laughs> and, I, and I did because I've been thinking about this a lot. Look, we have a president who leads in a way that every CEO I respect would say is abysmal. It's not the way I lead. It's not the way people should lead. It's not the best way to get results. These are not my values. This is not the way I think about the world or I think about leadership or I think about making things happen. But I'd be willing to bet that some of those CEOs are going to go to the polls and vote for him, not because of his leadership style or his personality or his, you know, the uh, racism or or misogynism or all, all the things we've talked about, but because of the policy. I mean, he... You know, he got that corporate tax reform that probably no other president could have gotten. He turned around a trend towards increasing regulation of business that was really beginning to hurt a lot of companies. So what do you say to fellow CEOs who say, yeah, go ahead. Shame on you. I'm sorry. I I know I'm going to get 
killed for this, right? I'm gonna get thrown out of whatever country club I don't belong to, I'm <laughs> never gonna be invited. Because let me tell you what, we have a responsibility to run really, really good companies. We also have a responsibility to leave behind a world that's better than it is when we inhabited it. But the world, an environment that we may not, by the way, I was a CEO, regulation, give me a break. I mean, some of it was crazy. But where we are now, where we are headed now, is we know that we are poisoning the world. We know it. And I don't give a who, you know, the science as well, you know, it may not be as fast as you think. I say, listen, if I even had a, a, a idea that this cleaning element was not good for my kids, I wouldn't have it anywhere, even if it was not proven, I wouldn't have it anywhere near my house. We are dealing with this world in a way that's very different, this earth in a way that very, that's very different than you would if you thought there would be a holy chance in hell that some of this stuff is true and right. I think that there is no reason for people, including businesses, to do well on the backs of people who can't defend themselves. And I think, I know that without, <laughs> without some supervision, companies will do that. What Donald Trump has done is he said, supervision gone. You, it's you guys run it. We know where it ends up. It ends up with 1% of the population owning 90% of the everything, resources, educational possibility, you name it. That's not, I, by the way, those guys may not have been bad. They played the game by the way that the rules were like. They didn't like break the laws. But you can't say that this outcome is reasonable and good for, for people. We are seeing in the pandemic. And when the pandemic started, I, I was so agitated about this. What do you call them? Critical workers. Mm -hmm. Essential workers. Essential workers. If you look at the average wage, I'm going to get this wrong, of the essential worker, it's literally right above minimum wage. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah. These are people that we have declared are essential. They have to serve us food at the checkout. They got to check us out. They got to move our gurneys when we're sick. They have to clean it. These essential workers are essentially minimum wage workers. You cannot have a society where that rhetoric is on once out of your mouth and we govern like the president is allowing us to govern. That says basically, you know, thank you to you essential workers. Get your slave butts to work. Do it. We need you, but we're not willing to pay you more than $6.75, I don't even know what it is, $7.50 an hour. And by the way, the people will do it for $7.50 an hour because if they don't do it for $7.50 an hour, they're going to starve to death. That's right. And now they live in communities that may never economically recover. We are smarter than this. We're better than this. I do understand that there's this, the people are going to go and say, yes, he's helped big business. Okay. I think we can kind of do a little bit better than that. Yeah, I, so I understand people will vote. I'm, I just say shame on us. If we can't figure out a better way to do this, what the hell are we doing? What's the point? I mean, I have a lot of money. I say this a lot. You know, I, I had a Catholic mom. <laughs> For every step that you make that you do something good, you have this like tinge of guilt. <laughs> so you don't get too far ahead of yourself. You, 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 my mother didn't want me to go ahead of my cover. She said, yeah, 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 but you got to watch So it. you feel guilty I about wonder. all that money? Yeah, you do feel guilty. 
you do, I'm sorry, you feel guilty. It's, it's the guilt check has me check continuously. The check is, are you being responsible for others? Are you helping others? My mother would always say, leave behind more than you take away. I would, you know, she would say that this is how you know you're good. If you leave behind more than you take away. And right now we clearly do have a structure in the United States and other countries as well, where there are very few people who have enough to leave behind. It's a scary, it's a scary reality. Yeah. So to make sure that we leave on a positive note, a year from now, we get back together. We talk about this uh, alliance. We talk about the signatories. We talk about what's been accomplished. What's one or two things that you would like to see that would be a sign that we're moving towards something good and beautiful? 100% of the Fortune 1000 companies have at least one black director. Okay. 100% of the Fortune 1000 companies have at least one woman director. That would be great. So Ursula, we're, we're going to have you back one year from now for two reasons. We are. For two reasons. One is to check on that statistic and see what progress we made. And two is because you are one heck of a good interview. You were on fire. I know. <laughs> so thank you. See you in a year. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 